Good evening, everyone. Um, as always, I start by acknowledging the Coast Salish peoples, the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh, upon whose traditional territory we gather today. And I thank them for sharing these lands in peace and friendship. Which in my badly pronounced Shinchasan is good day, friends. It's wonderful to be among you today. And I do mean that so very sincerely. I'm going to take a brief moment just to comment on the practice of land acknowledgement. <clears throat> um, because I'm very proud that it's been adopted broadly across British Columbia and indeed across the country. But it's important that it be more than just a pro forma statement. So I try to take it as an opportunity to reflect on the legacy of colonialism, the harms of the past, and what I can do in my personal life and in my role as Lieutenant Governor to contribute to the healing that is needed in Canada. And as the representative of an historic colonial institution, I do feel that there's no one more important to stand up and say, we can do better, we must do better. Thank you. So in preparing for this evening, I found myself reflecting on Thomas King's prize-winning book, The Inconvenient Indian, in which he begins with the ironic comment that Canada is, according to Canada, a just society. King is right to point out the disparity between our perception of our country and the reality in relation to the appalling historic treatment of Indigenous peoples. For certainly, it is undeniable that the wounds of the past persist in the present. The history of colonialism has left a legacy of economic disparities that continue to marginalize indigenous communities. But it is also true that over the past few years, Canadians have finally been awakened, awakened in our hearts to the truth of the appalling historic treatment of indigenous peoples who continue to work, raise families, and valiantly carry on their traditions despite the seizure of their lands, the apprehension of their children, and the culture of exclusion and abject disregard that was practiced against them. In a few minutes, Stu will share with us the results of a recent poll on the views of British Columbians toward reconciliation. You will see that there's pretty good support for the concept of re reconciliation writ large, but support diminishes when economics are included in the question. If economic reconciliation is just a catchphrase that requires nothing of us beyond the language of an oft-repeated land acknowledgement, of course it's easy to support. But as people increasingly recognize that more is required, we begin to see resistance that comes largely from fear of change and loss of control. This can be fear of economic consequences when short-term gains are prioritized over the long-term benefits of inclusive economic practices. As Indigenous peoples develop their own systems of government, the legal and governance interfaces with other jurisdictions will need to change, and existing institutional structures will be challenged to evolve. <clears throat> Consider also that people simply do not like change, even when it's good change. Adapting to new ways of working and interacting requires patience and persistence. It can be messy, time-consuming, and frustrating. We shouldn't be surprised when challenges to existing norms generates resistance. We need to help British Columbians understand that economic reconciliation is much more than just a legal and a moral imperative. 
It is a strategic investment in a more prosperous, equitable, and sustainable future for all Canadians, boosting economic growth, innovation, and the sustainability of resources and environment, building social cohesion and long-term stability by reducing the potential for social and economic disruptions. <clears throat> for business, it opens new market opportunities, aligns with growing consumer preferences, and enhances local and international reputation. Sadly, this is not as well understood as it could be. Our task, then, is to help others understand that economic reconciliation is not just a slogan. It is an opportunity for greater shared prosperity that will require a worthwhile shift in mindset, policy, and action. If we are serious, and we must be serious, we must recognize the necessity for Indigenous peoples to regain control over their economic destinies, not just for themselves, but for all of us. The TRC's call to action number 92 challenges the corporate sector to apply a reconciliation framework to principles, norms, standards, and corporate policies. This is a journey that we all share responsibility for. It requires that we move beyond mere acknowledgement to action, embracing policies that promote Indigenous economic development, dismantling barriers that obstruct the path to economic self-determination, and engaging in partnerships that amplify Indigenous voices and economic participation. I want to thank all of you for your willingness to participate in this crucial conversation, one that demands our sustained attention, our empathy, and our commitment. The process will not be without challenge, but it will be worthwhile, bringing us into better alignment with our Canadian values of justice, equity, and respect for the diverse tap tapestry of our country. I can think of no better way to conclude than with the visionary words of Chief Robert Joseph at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission final event, and they are this. <clears throat> Reconciliation will mean many things to many people. It will be big, it will be small. It will be simple, it will be complex. There will be a multiplicity of ways and levels to explore. But remember this, that it begins with you. There is not a person on earth who cannot affect reconciliation. Every color, every race, every creed, everybody. Everyone can find a part and play a role in the fostering of this noble idea called reconciliation. So friends, let us embrace this journey with open minds and open hearts, inspired to work towards that better world we all envision and desire. Thank you so much for the invitation to join you. Thank you, Your Honour. On June 26th, 2014, I was waiting to meet Greg Davignon, who is on the panel, for lunch, and he was late. Late. When he showed up, I said, what, what kept you? He said he was glued to the television set watching the reading of the Silkotine Nation versus British Columbia, the decision being handed down by the Supreme Court of Canada. He, far more than I, understood the significance of that decision. A court victory not only for the Silkotine, but for Indigenous peoples across Canada. 
It's a case about establishing title and the conditions that are placed on title once it's granted or is in the process of being granted. The case provided guidance on two questions. How is title proven? And what are the limits of title? Tonight, we're focused on the economic possibilities that are now emerging from that decision, the implementation of the principles of UNDRIP, the establishment of Section 35 of the Constitution, and as Her Honor Janet Austin spoke to, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's Action 92, which sets out fundamental actions that all business leaders ought to be incorporating into their operations, that being to advance reconciliation with Indigenous peoples. We'll talk about how to realize these aspirations, how to work together, and what increased prosperity can mean to First Nations. And we're also asking what are the challenges and impediments as we collectively move forward. Now, we have an exceptional panel tonight. Please allow me to introduce them to you. Next to me is Heisler Chief Counselor Crystal Smith. They're not in order on the seat, but they're in. <laughs> Ellis, you can raise your hand now. BCMLA for Skeena and the Shadow Minister for Energy and LNG, Ellis Ross. Roger Dallantonia, President and CEO of Fortis BC. Greg Davignon, who I referred to in my opening remarks, the president, former President and CEO of the BC Business Council and a partner at Canadian Strategy Group. Conrad Brown. President and CEO of Dakwakata Capital Investments in the Yukon, Thomas Isaac, Aboriginal law lawyer and partner at Castles Brock and Blackwell LLP, and Leon Gaber, Executive Director and National Lead Critical Infrastructure Resilience and Emergency Management here at KPMG. Now, just a little bit of business before we get into this. I want to express my wholehearted gratitude to our sponsors who make this evening possible. Our presenting sponsors are KPMG and RBC, Qit, the BC Securities Commission, and Helijet. And our annual event sponsors are Stem Cell Technologies, Fortis BC, Landlord BC, Polygon, BD, the Port of Vancouver, the Digital Technology Supercluster, Research Co., and our media partner is the Vancouver Sun. Our supporters are BCIT and Canadian Beef. And I want to especially thank Apogee Public Relations and give a big shout out to the team at Old Boy Productions, who are experts in live online and virtual event production and live video press conferences. One last thing for anyone who wishes to pose a question. Please go to slido.com Enter the passcode conversations and send in your question. Sean, our Slido master, will be receiving your questions and bringing them forward to us. And while we won't be able to get to all of them, I will be able to review them and they will help to inform you about some topics and questions that we can be asking this evening. Now, just before we dig in, as Her Honor, uh, Lieutenant Governor Janet Austin mentioned, we asked Mario Canseco, a research code to conduct a poll for us on the views of British Columbians about economic reconciliation. Amy, can you please roll Mario's video? Almost two-thirds of British Columbians have a positive view of the concept of reconciliation and are in favor of establishing and maintaining a mutually respectful relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples in Canada. Positive perceptions of this concept 
reached 72% among BC residents aged 55 and over. When we asked the same group of British Columbians about the concept of economic reconciliation, the results are different. Half hold favorable views on making economic amends for historical injustices to indigenous peoples, 15 points lower than what was observed on reconciliation on its own. On the concept of economic reconciliation, BC residents aged 18 to 34 are more likely to be on board, while those aged 55 and over are significantly more skeptical. When BC residents are asked about the role that governments should take to foster economic reconciliation, about 3 in 10 believe all levels are currently doing too little. Almost 1 in 4 think the federal government is doing too much on this file, while slightly fewer feel the same way about the BC government and municipal administrations across the province. One of the components of economic reconciliation is the opportunity for indigenous communities to decide without any outside influence. At a time when BC residents are increasingly concerned about housing, more than three in five think indigenous communities should decide what type of developments can be built in their territories. In addition, more than half of BC residents believe the same course of action should be taken on the natural resource file. Majorities of BC residents are in favor of two ideas that would advance economic reconciliation. More than two-thirds are in favor of boosting resources and education opportunities for indigenous people across BC, and more than half endorse increasing indigenous representation on boards of directors. For Conversations Live, I'm Mario Canseco from ResearchCo. So those results suggest there's strong support, and they also suggest there's still work to be done in sharing why economic reconciliation is fundamental to our collective future. Crystal, I'd like to start with you. I know that you've been shying away from me starting with you, but you know the reality is the Heisler Nation uh, has been a leader uh, in moving in this direction for a number of years. And I'd just like to start by asking you to give us a brief overview of how it's going. Uh, thank you for, for having me here today. It is definitely an honor to be on this panel, uh, specifically uh, a first for me, uh, seeing as I'm on a panel with our previous chief counselor and a really good friend of mine, uh, Ellis Ross. Uh, so, I mean, it, it is definitely, I, and I often describe how we are currently um, doing in, in the realm of economic reconciliation, and it is one that is, and for, for decades and decades, our communities have been so used to managing poverty and, and being very limited in our resources and, and how we can serve our people in, in, in the ways, limited ways that we were, uh, that, that we had. Uh, currently, it is definitely a, a, an experience, I'd say, in managing prosperity. Uh, I, didn't, I have a few council members here with me today and I can say that it, it is definitely one that has a, that presents new challenges and, and new opportunities, uh, but is one that we're definitely fortunate uh, to be experiencing in our community. Uh, we have to manage a lot of expectations. And for how many years dic being dictated by another level of government as to how we provide programs and services, we were limited to reservation, the, the reservation boundary. Now that we're seeing past say, INAC policies and, and B 
being told how to manage, we're having to figure out how to manage beyond our reserve. We have 2,000 members in, in our membership and they reside, the majority reside in community and, and surrounding areas, but majority are on the lower mainland and not at home. So it's finding ways uh, st still to manage um, the expectations of having that happen. That is a big uh, part of the equation, isn't it? How do you manage those expectations? Uh, there are legal challenges also that uh, stand in your way. Thomas, can I uh, turn to you and ask you, you know, what are the most important uh, legal challenges that, uh, or issues that First Nations and all of us need to understand if, as we move forward and, and uh, seek out opportunities to bring economic opportunity to so many of these nations? Uh, thank you. Uh, real pleasure to be here tonight with everyone on such an important topic uh, for all British Columbians, Indigenous and non-Indigenous. Um, it, you know, it may surprise you in terms of my my answer that the the legal challenges I think per se are actually relatively few, which may surprise you. Uh, having a lawyer say that. I don't want to leave anyone with the impression that we don't have uh, gray areas in the law and that there's not lots of litigation going on. But the single biggest issue that I see, and, and it flows from the law, um, is uh, public governments struggling with the direction, the very clear direction from our courts, which is to govern, and govern equitably and fairly. Uh, govern honorably. And um, I have the honor of working in every province and territory of Canada in this area. We actually act for indigenous governments, public governments, and industry across Canada. And uh, the biggest issue facing the law is public governments embracing the message from the highest court in the country, which is govern. And by the way, this is a non-partisan, I'm nonpartisan, say nonpartisan comment, I believe. I believe you know, conservative, liberal, and NDP, depending on where you're at in the spectrum. Every single government is struggling with this issue, including in British Columbia. And it crosses party lines. I've lived in British Columbia for 23 years. Um, and so that's, to me, sort of the biggest concern that, that I see, and the biggest issue that I see is public governments really embracing what their constitutional obligations are and what that would look like in practice, and again, I'll be very brief, but I, I've framed it this way, a sustainable, long-term public policy approach to these issues, which we don't have. We don't. We have a lot of political rhetoric uh, across the country. Again, I'm not picking on British Columbia at all. Uh, this, again, is a, across uh, party lines. And, and that's why I'm so excited, and I agreed to participate in this panel, that in terms of having the real conversations, really tough conversations that need to start, uh, need to start happening. So, I don't know if that's a direct answer to your question, but I, I believe it is an honest, accurate uh, answer. Yes, lots of legal challenges, but the single biggest issue I see on a day-to-day -day basis in my practice, acting for all three groups, is the need for a sustainable public policy approach to make sure. For example, all indigenous peoples are being brought along for economic reconciliation. And uh, it's a very challenging proposition in a province like British Columbia with more than 200 First Nations. 
Well, it also provides us a nice segue to go to Conrad because, Conrad, you've worked in different just, uh, jurisdictions. Would you agree? Uh, and what are some of those challenges that you've experienced, especially as you've moved away from British Columbia? Thanks, Stuart. Um, as Stuart mentions, I'm now in the Yukon, but I've spent probably 28 years in British Columbia within Indigenous economic uh, reconciliation, building different companies and doing different things with uh, First Nations within British Columbia. Um, I will say quite honestly that the government of British Columbia, through many losses in the courts, quickly figured out that they probably have to change their approach. When you go to the courts and continually lose on a grand scale, it, it becomes painfully obvious. So they go and codify UNDRIP into the laws of British Columbia with no direction. Go figure it out for yourselves, business. Go figure it out for yourselves, First Nations. And what they've done by doing that is they've added layers onto the First Nations responsibilities that they simply do not have the capacity to handle. I know because I've lived it and I'm living it today, that the more times the government adds those layers, the more troublesome it becomes for First Nations to engage. Gentlemen around me become wealthy off of this, lawyers and consultants, because of the lack of capacity within First Nations. I'm not knocking that. The lawyers and the consultants have to jump up and try to help the First Nations. So the biggest concern for me within the Indigenous economic reconciliation is capacity building. We say that, but every business in North America that I can see is struggling with capacity issues. So how do we reconcile our capacity issues in business with the capacity issues within First Nations? I'll go back to the start. I started on Vancouver Island uh, working with the Gwasalanakwa First Nation. I worked for the province of British Columbia. I'm now up in the Yukon working for the Champaign-Asiac First Nations, whose traditional territory also falls into British Columbia. So multi-jurisdictional, plus 350 are allowed to work in Alaska. So I also have the Americans to deal with too. So uh, when you start adding all those layers, the capacity that's required to work our way through the economics of this becomes huge. So if I could say one thing and leave it with everybody, the capacity within the First Nations has to be supported as best as we can through government, through business relationships, and through other mechanisms. So I'll just leave it at that. Well, Roger, I'm going to go to you because you are heavily involved in the wood fiber LNG uh, project. Uh, you work with First Nations, and you have uh, remained committed to developing those relationships and continually moving forward. But you run into those same challenges as well. Uh, yeah, thanks uh, again, Stuart, for the invite. I think this is clearly a critical conversation and based on the polls uh, that uh, Mario shared, one of great interest. Uh, so a little bit about Fortis, BC. Uh, we've been operating in the province for well over 100 years. Energy infrastructure, uh, electricity, natural gas. Uh, our our infrastructure covers 150 traditional territories of the 204 traditional territories in the province. Uh, we serve directly 58 Indigenous communities. So we've had uh, the, uh, the uh, relationships with many First Nations uh, for decades and decades. So, you know, we're, we're fortunate in, in a way that we are uh, in, in this space uh, because, you know, 
as uh, uh, Crystal had once said to me, uh, the road to net zero goes through Indigenous lands. So I think when you're in the energy space, um, you've lived these challenges probably more than pretty much any other space. I, I would say anybody in infrastructure, when you're touching land, you're touching water, has had to deal with a number of the issues and how you get things built. Uh, and the court cases, you mentioned Chilcotin, I remember uh, one uh, before that in 1997, Delgamuk, right. uh, which was also presidential at the time. Uh, and I've been in the energy industry now for 30 years here in BC. So I've seen uh, the change uh, over that time. I think uh, the comments by Thomas, the lack of uh, clarity by govern to govern is true. I think UNDRIP was an attempt to provide a better framework. Uh, you're right, I think the, the number of court cases that clearly stated uh, rights and title, uh, duty to consult and accommodation made it clear that there needed to be a better way. I think uh, it's, you know, to a point though that, you know, there will not be one framework that you can use to govern, right? Like I think this, is, this situation is really going to be a function of a, a, a tripartite relationship. It's going to be the, uh, the the nations involved, the indigenous communities that are impacted by project development. It'll be uh, the nature of the project, uh, the, the amount of benefit, the impacts uh, to those nations from that infrastructure. And then it'll be a function of the public good for that project. And that's where the government will exert more or less support to allow that project to go ahead. We, we're building the uh, Eagle Mountain gas pipeline project to serve wood fiber, uh, and that's a 50 kilometer pipeline from Coquitlam uh, to the wood fiber site. And so we're covering, we're basically dealing with four uh, primary uh, nations, the Squamish, the Salo Tooth, the Musqueam, and the Coquitlam. And we've been able to uh, strike agreements with all four of those uh, fairly detailed impact benefit agreements. And we're very proud that we submitted to the first in, uh, Indigenous-led environmental assessment uh, process to get approval for our project. Uh, we had the BC environmental assessment we went through. We also, um, next to it, went through the Squamish-led uh, process. And, and for us, that was a significant learning because as you think about traditional ways of developing projects, you know, we would look at environmental impacts. We'd look at the buildability, the constructability, Going through the, that Squamish process, and, and I, I'll get back to, I think, a more direct answer in a second here. Mm. Uh, you know, we came out of it with 27 conditions that we had to satisfy, which we have done. We received a certificate. We've also had the, the Squamish Nation approve some amendments to that certificate for project uh, changes. But the things that came out of it from us was, you know, there wasn't just environmental stewardship. Uh, there was cultural issues that we had to address. So... We, uh, our first design changed dramatically, and we are now building a, a tunnel under the Swellum uh, estuary. Uh, environmentally, we could have done it differently, but addressing cultural uh, issues that were important to the Squamish Nation to get uh, support for the project, uh, we ended up uh, uh, developing a different design for the project. As well, economic skills training, cultural uh, uh, support, support for cultural uh, rehabilitation, all those types of things came out of that relationship. So when, when, you, when you're thinking about uh, what's needed, I, I don't think there really is going to be one answer here. I think it's really going to be, you have to start from the, the position that there is a requirement to develop a relationship with the nations you're engaging with. It cannot be transactional. Um, 
it's not a business relationship in the traditional sense. It's not show up, hey, I got a project. How quickly can we get to yes? That's not going to work. You really have to understand what's important to the nations, uh, what are their key concerns. Um, we're in a situation where we provide critical infrastructure, so we can't necessarily not pursue projects. We have to uh, build the projects we build because they deliver energy to most of British Columbia. So it's really approaching uh, the nations uh, from a different perspective than a traditional business relationship. And the framework is the framework. It's really going to be um, whether you approach those with uh, a desire for a relationship based on affinity, one that's based on mutual respect, and one that tries to understand that it's not simply a financial transaction. And that, that we're still not there. We're, we're still learning. Um, we've been at it for over 100 years, and we're still trying to figure this out a little bit. But I think for us, um, the, the UNDRIP framework um, has given us um, uh, uh, more of a roadmap than looking for a government to give us the, uh, the bright line test that we have to cross, because it's going to change by nation. Uh, they're all going to have different considerations. They're all going to have different expectations of that engagement. So um, I think this is really, um, I'm not sure if it's going to make it easier, but if you approach it with that spirit, I think you'll end up getting to a better outcome. Thank you, Roger. Greg, I would like you to continue on with how do we start to work towards those relationships so that we are uh, building uh, partnerships uh, and cooperative working that helps to fit maybe more of a social purpose rather than just a business purpose. You know, and social purpose being the why are we doing this rather than what we're doing. Well, again, thank you very much. It's uh, most of the people in this audience with us tonight, let alone online, could be up on the panel and inform this conversation as well as, as uh, I can. But just some observations. Um, Lieutenant Gunnar touched on it, and um, Crystal did it at the outset as well. Change is easy when it's not near you, and the closer it gets to you, the more complicated it becomes. And we're in an interesting time where we've got choice of change, but there's empathy for that change to happen. Um, if you look back <clears throat> almost two years ago last night, flooding happened in the Fraser Valley. And the last time that happened, my grandfather was the unfortunate volunteer flood warden in Chilliwack. Um, <clears throat> and so it does happen. But we managed to do something that other parts of the country have thought about for generations, which is separate from the rest of the country. But it took an atmospheric river to do it. We literally were cut off both in the north-south boundary as well as with the rest of the province. Indigenous nations were at risk. Livestock, people, property, homes. Our infrastructure and supply were cut off. I had a call from government saying we may have to ration gasoline because we don't have access to it. And a miraculous thing happened, which happens when we're Canadian. <clears throat> we actually came together and said, how do we work together with common purpose to get an outcome at speed? And the federal and provincial governments came together and said, we've got to fix this quickly. And if you did said two years ago last week that within 38 days, that would largely be back up and running. And I, last week was just an announcement that the re-engineered Coquihalla and others had been completed. I would have chuckled. But we were getting permits in 38 minutes that would take a year and a half to get done. Because we had to. Because change was upon us and we had to confront it. And I would argue that if we had that common purpose with reconciliation, which first starts about relationships, we're actually rebuilding a relationship that for 
generations we've taken for granted as non-Indigenous people. You know, can you imagine somebody coming onto your property and saying, oh, I'm going to park my car on your lawn for the next 200 years. You probably are at some point not going to run out of patience. And I'm amazed when I meet Indigenous leaders, just the resilience and the patience that they have going forward. But the second part of it is economic reconciliation to your questions, Stu, is a means to an end. Mm -hmm. It's how do you advance sole source income to get away from the Indian Act to enable self-determination? on the terms that the community and the nation want. And as Roger said, this is relation-based socioeconomic work. They're all integrated. Why does the Heisla now have the capacity to educate anyone that wants to in any way that they want to because of economic reconciliation? Why do communities like um, the partnership at MST advancing things quickly but under their own means? Roger talked about the environmental assessment process with wood fiber, uh, which was indigenous-led. So we're in this point of change and it gets uncomfortable, hence the polling that you saw from Mario going forward. But I think there's three key aspects of it. One we talked about was capacity. The government has created DRIPA, which uh, is to apply to 540 pieces of legislation. It's daunting, it's daunting. And so as a consequence to Tom's point, we don't have a public policy construct to be able to make decisions and economic reconciliation is very ethereal. Like it means different things to different people. Secondly is nations just don't have a capacity. Some of them that are in small communities have fewer than 100 people. The Coquitlam is an example. How do you look after social issues, childcare, poverty, um, referrals from different levels of government, sophisticated operators? You can't. And so governments have an obligation to step up to help on capacity to rebuild nations on their own terms around the governance that they will repatriate back to their communities going forward culturally. Secondly is access to capital. The federal government announced today, after three years of discussion, loan guarantee backstop for large infrastructure programs, which is to be commended. It is significant because now it allows competitive capital to come into the market with indigenous-led ownership in those infrastructure pieces. But we need a policy clarity around consent, partnership, and how we actually move forward, including skills and development so that a job on the end of a shovel is one path, but a job in the end of an algorithm is another for indigenous youth as well. And the last is just shared knowledge and understanding. So back to the floods, I remember uh, two engineers telling me a story in the canyon that they needed to literally redirect a river because the geology had changed. <clears throat> And they were sitting discussing it at a coffee shop and two indigenous elders came up to them and said, I know you're talking about moving the river one way, but if you moved it the other way, uh, you'll be far better off. And they sat and thought about it for a minute and they were right. So it's that shared knowledge of the land and understanding that saved money, saved time, and it saved a lot of consequential heartache after the fact. So back to partnerships, uh, companies have been doing this for a while, but it's been transactional. Governments uh, are doing their best, but they're very transactional in the way they're doing things right now. And we need a bigger conversation that's more robust around capacity, governance, and around shared knowledge and understanding. Thanks. Leon, I'm going to come to you in just a moment. But I also, because you brought up the uh, fantastic work that was done on the Coquihalla Highway, uh, we have a number of members of the team that actually made that miracle happen here with us tonight uh, from Cuit. Good on you. Just extraordinary job. 
Um, I remember being up there the day before it opened in the midst of a snowstorm. They were laying down pavement to get that uh, highway open on time so that everybody could benefit from it. Leon, uh, to you. Uh, you've lived uh, this file from the government side for quite some time. When you hear the remarks so far, what are your, your thoughts? Yeah, thanks, Stuart, and, and uh, really, really appreciative to be on this panel. Yeah, so I, I was in the BC government for 15 years in the natural resource sector, and from a number of different files saw how the province was approaching reconciliation, and I can tell you, almost to a person that I've interacted with in my career, the public servants in the BC government really have adopted that mindset and that, that direction from the province uh, of reconciliation. So they want to achieve reconciliation. And I think part of the challenge is they've never either A, been told what is the path to achieve that. And there are many, many barriers, I think, in, in place that make it harder for the province to achieve that. So the Declaration Act was passed, brings UNRIP into law in BC here, which is great. What the province never did was provide a pathway to how do you operationalize that piece of legislation on the ground. And I think it's really critical to think about the nations around the province, the close ties they have to their territory. You know, I'm, I'm from Manitoba, my, my parents and family immigrated to Canada maybe 150 years ago. I moved here 15 years ago. So my relationship with the land is dramatically different than what the relationship to the land that the nations here in BC have. And it's really, I think, hard for us to, for myself, to conceptualize what that relationship really means to nations. And I say that because the land and the things that are happening on the land, forestry, mining, energy generation and transmission projects are really important and critical to nations and their economic reconciliation. And so when we in the natural resource sector and government uh, are trying to think through how do you implement, how do you operationalize DRIPA on the land base, it's very challenging uh, because it's so complex, but it's so meaningful to nations. And that's a really important point, I think, the the province now, so as an example, have created the Ministry of Water, Land, and Resource Stewardship. And one of the key reasons for creating that ministry was a recognition that the system set up right now, so there's a, there's a legal duty to consult with nations when there is an activity happening on their land base. It's a referral system. It's a frankly a broken system. There is not, as many have said already, there is not the capacity in these nations to interact to be a part of that system that government has set up for them to interact with. And so it's a broken system from the, from the get-go and the government has recognized that and wants to change that. And I, I really commend the efforts of folks in government still. I've got to say though, you know, we are a year and a half in with this new ministry and one of its primary goals is to get out of that business of transactional referral base, every single permit on the land base that, that affects a nation, we have to go in and consult with those nations to get consent uh, because they don't, as I said, have that capacity. So we're a year and a half in where the government is trying to recreate, imagine a new mechanism and process to achieve those legal requirements of consent in a different way. But to be honest, yeah, and I hear from the business community regularly, they don't see 
that change. And so they don't see things changing probably at the speed that business would like it. So there, you, I think you have this imbalance between the intentions and drive and, and desire of the province to do things in a different way. But there are many barriers, you know, not least of which is the Indian Act, which I think holds back that wholesale really at speed change that's needed across the board. We'll come back to that issue about the Indian Act in a moment. But Ellis, when you listen to this and you hear about how uh, there's a bunch of uh, statements that are made, there are we, um, you know, adopt the principles of UNDRIP and then nothing. Why? How can we get to the point where we make announcements but we're not following through? Uh, because the topic itself, reconciliation, is all the above based on what I've heard. And yet it's nothing at the same time. We're going around in circles. You've analyzed this to a point where you don't know where the beginning is. You don't even know where the end is. And I've heard references to DRIPA. DRIPA is a political document. It's got no meat. I didn't support it as chief counselor. I still don't support it as an MLA. And when I saw the wording, all I saw was a document said the rights and title case law that was established in the courts of BC and Canada still prevail. The BC government just got through arguing court saying a DRIPA is an interpretive aid. This BC government promised to consult every First Nation on every single piece of legislation passed through the BC legislature. They have not done it. To the fullest definition of consultation established by the courts. And by the way, it was not Chilcotin that defined that. It was a Hyder Court case in 2004. That's where the re word reconciliation comes from. And this is what happens when you politicize a word like reconciliation. And it's such an ugly thing to do to politicize that because people are suffering. First Nations, 70 to 80% unemployment across Canada. The largest amount of kids per capita going into care. The largest population in prisons. Poverty. The poverty, the violence of poverty. And yet what do we do? Let's politicize it. Let's talk about everything except the one thing that helps First Nations, economics. And I don't know why there's so much confusion. You've already got a playbook that was painfully produced by the BC government and the highs of First Nation that brought peace in the forest. It brought the largest private investment in BC history, $40 billion. And it wasn't easy. But we acknowledge the BC government does not have a role to play in economic reconciliation. That's why the court said there is a strong economic component that must be addressed, and the government is not about economics. It's the business community. When I get up and thank people for addressing poverty in Heisler, I don't thank governments. I thank the business community. I thank the contractors, the people that hired the people. That's who I thank. They're responsible for giving my BAM members a job so they could get an RSP, buy a house, go on vacation. They're the ones that done the heavy lifting. I don't know why we're trying to reinvent the wheel when the wheel is already there. And the wheel is already being established all across BC. I'll give you one more example. You're talking about government's duty. Government can't do it. How do you legislate reconciliation when there's so much pieces of legislation that have to override it. 
the environmental assessment of BC overrides native rights. And I, and I see it, I understand why. You have to protect society at large, not just for today, but for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. There's even programs that undermine reconciliation. Look at the Community Benefits Agreement that was established by this government. First Nations are excluded unless they do what government says. They're not allowed to work on public infrastructure projects. That's a political maneuver. So I don't see how you do this in terms of legislation and regulation when the governments have to oversee five million people in terms of the province of British Columbia. On the other hand, why do you not go back to basics? Why don't you read the Hydro court case and use that as the roadmap going forward and get rid of all this confusion and all this other political fluff that got us to the point now where we have no idea what we're talking about? Yeah, <laughs> <A> mic drop. <laughs> Thomas, you listened to, I saw you reacting to uh, Ellis, and I know that you've got comments here. Uh, well, yes, and I, look, I would say in large part I agree with what Ellis just said. Uh, as a lawyer, I, and I, I want to be clear, my comments that I'm about to make, I mean, these are not anti-UNDRIP, I'm not against UNDRIP. Uh, UNDRIP's a useful document. Um, but I use, and it's been helpful to some of our corporate clients. I really appreciated what Roger said. I want to be very clear, it could be helpful. Here's my issue. My issue is what governments are saying about UNDRIP and what is actually being done. Much of what we're hearing up here, and um, this is not helpful to reconciliation. And again, these are independent comments. For example, the comment that Alice made about the court case is absolutely accurate. The interpretation, so contrary to what we have heard politically about UNDRIP being adopted into British Columbia law, it has not been. That's what the legislation says, but it has not been. The Interpretation Act provision actually says that every law and regulation in BC shall be construed as if UNDRIP was fully implemented. That is what the government lawyers argue, and I will say they correctly argued, that directly contradicts all of the political statements that we've heard on UNDRIP. That is not helpful to reconciliation. This province, I think, has, and I think our country has reached a stage of maturity that we can engage in real dialogue. And we need to have serious dialogue about reconciliation. Um, UNDRIP. So both the federal government and the government of BC have pass legislation that says every law and regulation must be consistent with UNDRIP. That is impossible. That cannot be done. The indigenous governments I work for, industry proponents that I work for, public governments that I advise, mostly secret, all know this to be true. So how is this helpful to reconciliation? It is absolutely not helpful to reconciliation. It doesn't, that, now that doesn't mean we can't have a good dialogue about UNDRIP and that it can't be a helpful document, but we need to engage. Desmond Tutu in South Africa, what did he say about, South, uh, about reconciliation? What was key to reconciliation in his view? Truth. And he said it has to be everyone's truth. And I think we're at a stage of our 
uh, evolution as a Canadian society or as a British Columbian society that we have to engage in real truth-telling. It's going to be very, very painful. Um, so, again, I'm not here. Uh, a BC action plan. Go read it for yourselves. 40-some-odd pages on UNDRIP. How much of that action plan, so remember the new relationship too, the same thing, everything government's doing is going under, either it was the new relationship, now it's under, I don't want to at all suggest that government shouldn't be doing good things and that those programs are not good things, but now it's all under under. Look what we're doing. The one thing in the legislation the government's supposed to do is what? Align every law and regulation. Look at the action plan, half a page devoted to it. We'll set up a secretariat, we'll study this now for five years. The comment about lawyers and consultants getting, uh, you know, getting work. And again, my, my comment isn't to try to throw UNDRIP out the window, but is that actually helpful? Final comment I will make is, you know, I, I live in a very beautiful city. I, I live in West Vancouver. I won't name the nations by names, but we have other nations that don't have, you know, whether it's electrical transmission going through their backyard or a mine in their backyard. Um, and uh, they have safe, uh, clean drinking water concerns, drive their kids to school on forestry roads uh, that are inherently uh, dangerous. Um, they have severe housing concerns, severe poverty, severe health issues. They're not making the front page. They, they're not getting any IBAs. They're not. And my suggestion isn't that we start developing mines in their backyards, but this is again where we've got to bring everybody along for reconciliation if we are serious about it. That's going to require very challenging discussions in this province and, uh, and keeping in mind that we have to remain competitive globally. So all these mines and all the economic development that we are relying on for economic reconciliation, there are major concerns about Canada's competitive place, and that's not to suggest we can ignore the Section 35 requirements, but we have to start talking about uh, these things if we're going to make some real progress. So, sorry, that was a lot, but Ellis triggered triggered me on a few things. Well, well you've just triggered him. He wants to respond. <laughs> Ellis. <laughs> hey, let's get into this. I, I do acknowledge that the Heisla are lucky, but we weren't always lucky. We were actually surrounded by industrial development for 60 years and we did not gain one penny. We had aluminum smelter, pulp and paper, methanol. We had the community of Kitimat. Our river was killed off. So in the 1970s, we started fighting that and trying to bring the environment back and trying to be a part of it. We weren't a part of it until 2004. That's when we really started to make the changes. But when we started to see the wealth come in, we had two major LNG projects in our territory, all the contracts coming in, forestry, a little bit of mining. But then we saw our neighbors up and down the BC coast who had nothing. And they were opposing some of the projects. So when we got in the room and sat down with them, what's your problem? Well, we're, we're living in poverty, we got no employment. So on a handshake, and this is reconciliation from First Nation to First Nation, on a handshake, yes, I understand you got no economic development in your territory. I understand you're suffering from social issues just like we were. But why don't you come in under our umbrella under RIBA, so we don't add extra cost to the project, and we guarantee you projects. We guarantee you contracts, upwards of $20 million per contract. And the First Nations on a handshake said, yes, we'll do it. So in Heisla, which is unheard of, have First Nations with their logos working inside our territory. 
that is another level of reconciliation nobody talks about. And the, the media is not going to come rushing to our doorstep to do a story on us because it's just not sexy enough. A First Nation to resolve poverty, resolve their social issues. It's just not sexy enough. So what do they do? They, they do the, the opposite. They cover the bands that oppose it. But for all those bands that did not have economic development opportunities, we thought it was our responsibility to include them to resolve their issues. Because at the end of the day, you know, it, it didn't matter if you were First Nations or not. We were trying to help a region. We were trying to help a province. We were trying to help a country. Crystal, in a recent interview that you did with uh, Carol Taylor for BC Legends, you made this very point. You were saying, we're not alone. We are uh, good neighbors. Uh, we're friendly nations. We're working together for all people. How, how has it uh, been working, especially as you're now developing and becoming your own development corporation and being able to bring this uh, group of nations together? Yeah, I got kind of nervous at the beginning there and kind of went off on a different tangent. I mean, Ellis described it perfectly in regards to where we were to where we're at today. Uh, you know, the, from from the time of being partners in impact benefit agreements to being a majority owner of one of the largest infrastructure projects that's Indigenous-owned and Indigenous-led is definitely a huge transformation for, for our community. And in regards to the comments that Ellis is making around having that opportunity, and it wasn't an easy process. You're reaching out to a, a neighboring nation that where we've been pitted against each other for years for very, very minimal dollars, and where governments came in and said, you need to establish your, your, your boundary, your territorial boundaries, where they were impeding in, in ours and we were impeding in theirs. Set, and, and still to this day, it's still occurring. It creates a tension in between communities that, that prior to contact never existed. You think about what we've been able to do in establishing the relationships with the nations. And I, when I first came on board uh, to, to the leadership, I was actually a counselor under Ellis. And I was so interested in developing the relationships with other Indigenous communities that I sat on and, and asked if I could sit on all of the boards that had to do with the Indigenous relationship component, just to see where each nation was at and learn about them. And when, when we're talking about sitting in a room with 16 other nations that have to do with one single project, you don't trust one another. You cannot share information because you you think that you, the, the, the person sitting next to you and their nation is going to get a one-up on you. That's how those rooms first started out. And we're talking about what we were, where we see the alignment. And we, it was a conversation, actually, at one of the council meetings. And we had talked about who's fully Heisla sitting around this council table. I think you were the only one that put up your hand. <laughs> and I... I'm not, I'm, my biological father's from another community that's down the channel, which means I've got family. I've got my father there, I've got a stepbrother, stepsisters, nieces, nephews, and I'm looking at down the channel thinking, okay, we're, we're pitted against each other for all this dollars and all these revenues, limited revenues, but yet my cousin, my dad, my stepbrother are having to live in poverty. You think about, and, and we had this conversation where we were saying, okay, well, you're, you're part Haida, you're part Simshan. Why don't we share this wealth? Why don't we, why don't we develop and, and establish that 
trust and that relationship with our neighboring nations. And it was actually when, when Ellis um, decided to become an MLA where I became the acting chief counselor and got the mandate fully from the council of full support to start going to these communities and start sitting at the tables that they were at and saying, our doors are open, how can we work together? Our, our common theme with, with Gitgat and, and Kekatla were, were people situated by waters. We've lived on the, by the waters, navigated them since time immemorial. Made sense to have a partnership with a company like C-SPAN that would be doing work on the water. So we established those re relationships and fully opened the doors to, to communities all along the pipeline that we could sit in front of and talk to about we have so many contracts, so many opportunities. We've got 2,000 Heisler members, but they're all not going to want to work in an LNG facility. Come work in our territory so that we can start diminishing this poverty in each of your communities. We can stop the suicides. So it's all meaningful work, and it's all about reconciling in, with individual nations. And again, we have ample opportunity. I, I mean, with LNG Canada, the possibility of phase two that door is still open to any community within this province that can come and, and provide employment. You know, Crystal, as you were speaking, I was reminded of a conversation that I had with Perry Belgard when he was the National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. And he said something really interesting, and I think it touched on what, what you are talking about. He said, if you can't build relationships, you can't build anything. And I want to ask down uh, Roger, Greg, and Conrad, would you agree? And how important is it in the development of those relationships? Um, and then we'll go the final step into, so then what are the components that have to be built into a, a relationship so that everybody benefits and we're being respectful of First Nations? Yeah. So <clears throat> one of the interesting parts about relationships, and I'm going to go down the road here, so just bear with me for a second. When you have outside influences coming into the traditional territories of First Nations that are not tied to that nation through economic reconciliation, so government or business or other First Nations, and I'm talking about environmentalists. Also, an environmentalist show up on, on the doorstep and they start speaking loudly on behalf of the First Nations. Why in the heck are they doing that? They have no right to do that. Zero rate, but yet the outside influences from American money coming into those environmental groups, splashing it across the newspapers, making it to Europe so that they can up their uh, revenues from, from fundraising to come back and pit nation against nation, nations against business, nations against government is absolutely atrocious. So for the steps that business, government, and First Nations take for economic reconciliation, there's also that outside entities or people with ulterior motives that start to speak on behalf of the First Nations. And I can't think of anything more disrespectful, absolutely disrespectful. One example, the environmentalists were asked not once, not five, not seven, but nine separate times to leave. You don't speak on our behalf. Oh, no, no, we're allowed to be here. How condescending is that? It's absolutely atrocious. So when we're talking about economic reconciliation and we talk about the challenges and we talk about how do we move forward, 
we all have to understand that there's powers that be that are fighting hard against these types of projects. And as far as I'm concerned, they should go back to where they came from, speak on their own behalf, and never speak on behalf of the First Nations. Absolutely disrespectful. Jump in here for just a moment. I, I love the term. Uh, we call that eco-colonialism. Yes. <laughs> Great. Um, think about where you've been really successful in your life. It's always been somebody took an interest in you and what you wanted to do, not an interest in what I wanted to do and tell you about it. And... <clears throat> Relationships are based on a couple of things. Trust, that you have to earn, and consistency. So we always talk about consent, but you know, I've been married my wife for 30 years. I'm sure there's some days she wasn't really happy with the original free prior and foreign part of it. <laughs> <clears throat> but there's a consistency of how we have a relationship. And I think that's true going forward. Roger touched on it at the outset. There were transactional activities where it just happened. Then there were commercial relationships and IBAs and other things that were um, a step. But the conversations that are really meaningful, that are moving things forward in the province and in the country, and frankly, we beat ourselves up. BC's ahead of a lot of the country. Right. Um, is that it's relationship-based common interest. You know, I used that analogy earlier. There's indigenous people all over the world if we actually moved with urgency in the way that Crystal and Ellison and others <clears throat> on the panel have talked about, it can be a differentiated opportunity to attract capital and wealth that reduces climate emissions, that gets people out of poverty, that pays for the deficit that we have as a government. We just had another $40 billion today. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and the reality is we've had a comfort level in this country, Stu, that it, life has been good but not for everybody. But we're dead last in the OECD and GDP per capita. That's a measure of quality of life. And it's because capital is going elsewhere, because it's too hard. <clears throat> we can turn that around in a way that makes sense. And it starts with building relationships. I, I used to joke about this five years ago, but I believe it today. I think Indigenous people are going to get us out of our malaise and actually create wealth and opportunity in a way that's sustainable <clears throat> in the absence of government capacity and industry capacity and community capacity, but it comes around building a relationship of trust and how you move forward together on that. LNG is one example, but there's a myriad of those examples that are happening. We've got a huge opportunity in critical minerals and mining that the world needs to decarbonize, but that money's gonna go elsewhere in a way that isn't really helpful to the indigenous nations in those places around the world. Why wouldn't we do it properly here if we can build the relationships and build the trust going forward? I agree. Roger. Uh, so short answer, relationships are <clears throat> absolutely critical, but I think <clears throat> it's more about like how we think about the, the relationship, at least as an organization that is uh, heavily in, uh, involved with uh, multiple Indigenous communities. And, you know, the, the need for relationship really is one about trust. We've heard that before from the panel here but I don't think people fully understand why it needs to be based on trust. And it's really, I don't think anyone appreciates the generational mistrust that has been built up that indigenous communities <clears throat> have dealt with. 
We have 2,700 employees. Again, we 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 cover uh, hundreds of or 150 traditional communities. So uh, we're we're indigenous communities. We're we're in a number of different uh, uh, communities with different people. Not all of them have uh, uh, multiple touch points. So our approach really has been trying to put it on ourselves to become aware of the truth before you get to reconciliation. We focus on the reconciliation because that's the, the outcome. You've, you've achieved something, but it's hard to get to the reconciliation if you've, unless you've invested time to understand why there's this mistrust. What is the, the truth? I think as a, as a society, uh, the, uh, the, the finding of the 215 uh, up in Kamloops was uh, really critical. It was probably the first time that I remember having discussions with my kids friends about how traumatic that must have been but I think you know from that those types of opportunities it's really incumbent on uh, non-indigenous folks who want to work with indigenous communities to make sure they're aware of the history you should not rely on indigenous uh, communities to teach us we should undertake our own indigenous awareness training there's lots of great resources it's really hard to develop a relationship until you know a little bit about who you're dealing with. And in business, you don't always have the, the function of time. So, you know, we've uh, taken upon our organization to try to get pretty much every one of our employees through a certain amount of Indigenous awareness training. So when they are dealing with Indigenous uh, communities, they are aware of uh, the expectations, uh, a better understanding of the trauma. So they are not approaching this as a, uh, as a, as a standard business transaction. So yeah, I think really the relationship is critical, but the effort that goes into that relationship can't be focused just on the economic aspect. There needs to be a, a, a step before that where you understand why there's these differences, what is important to the communities you're dealing with. So when you are uh, engaging in opportunities, you have a better understanding of what's important to them. I want to come back to a point that uh, Greg made uh, in a conversation or an interview that I did with Bill Gallagher uh, for Resource Rulers. He agrees with you that the key to our economic prosperity as a country is in our relationships with First Nations. So with that in mind, uh, Sean, there's a question here about, you know, what is um, what can the, the governments of the country do? Maybe you could read that question, please. Sure. The first question there, Stuart? Yeah, please. It says uh, several panelists have mentioned that government needs to set up better governance for reconciliation. What is one concrete thing the province in Ottawa could do that would have the biggest positive impact? Leon, I'm going to start with you. <laughs> Easy question. No. Um, <laughs> I think one, in my mind, and I've been reflecting on this for a while now, <clears throat> one of the most important things I think the government here in BC can do is give authority <clears throat> to the First Nations in BC to have a meaningful role in the decisions that are made in their traditional territory on the types of activities that do and don't happen within their territory. You know, I, I, I was speaking earlier about land and, and the importance of it to nations. So we're, we're supporting a number, number of nations here in BC to become equity partners in a large infrastructure project. And one of the chiefs that have been quite vocal in the discussions to date has spoken at length uh, and very passionately and eloquently about the importance of land to nations here in BC. And so when I think about 
what economic reconciliation means. I don't see a solution if it's not tied to the land. And so I think, in my mind, the government, uh, pr primarily provincially here, the, the single biggest thing they can do is to give that authority to nations to have a meaningful role. And that, that role will be different depending on the, the path to self-determination different nations are down uh, along and where they want to go with self-determination. But providing that authority and then giving them the opportunity to take part in the types of activities that do happen in their traditional territory. I mean, that, in my mind, is, you know, if we can achieve that, that is a really positive step and concrete step towards achieving economic reconciliation because the nations here in BC have had that relationship for thousands of years to that land. It will not go away. So providing the ability for them to be true decision makers in those decisions is, in my mind, paramount to, to what they can do. Conrad. I'll go back to uh, the old growth uh, panel that was uh, asked to come up with some uh, ways forward through the forestry. And the government was giving uh, a number of different options on how they can approach First Nations. And they decided that they would provide them with 30 days notice to give back a response on this old growth paper. To me, that's absolutely ludicrous. There's no way that even a business could have read through that old growth uh, binder and provided enough information to shareholders, owners, whatever, of a business. Never mind First Nations governments who are dealing with education, health, housing, all the other things that they have to deal with. The disrespect that was shown by the government by forcing that 30-day mandate on them because they had a timeline in their mind is exactly the opposite of what this question is. This question was, how can the government help? They can help by stop doing that stuff. They can help by starting to do the never mind co-management, but actually give the management decisions over to the First Nations. So I'm going to leave it at that. There's lots more that the feds and the province can do, but there's lots that they have to stop doing. And rushing through these processes is one thing that I would strongly suggest that they do. Ellis, your thoughts? Statutory decision-making authority is real. And I don't know how you water that down. Yeah, you can say the government can give uh, First Nation decision-making powers, but at the end of the day, BC is still going to be liable. And if the minister is not going to make that decision, ultimately it's either the First Nation or the government's going to be on a hook for an accident. Look at Mount Polly. There's a reason why there's so many regulations and legislation in BC. It's not just for today, it's not just for reconciliation, it's to protect the land base. There's already enough of this. In fact, if anything, the one thing I'd recommend is go back to what worked for LNG. I was part of a group that actually tried to establish a communication protocol with seven other First Nations of the BC government. So we hired the consultants and lawyers, and they brought in this big booklet as a finished agreement. I looked at it, and I threw it in the garbage, because I had to hire a consultant to explain it to me how it works. So I phoned up Christy Clark. Hey, all I need to do is do a true government-to-government -government relationship, meaning when I got a problem, I phone you up, 
I phone the minister up. I don't talk to your deputy minister. I don't talk to your program manager. I tell you the issue. And when we can agree that the issue has to be solved, I turn the issue over to my staff, and they work it out with your staff. It worked brilliant because we both had common objectives, and we weren't even talking about reconciliation. We were talking about permits, talking about environmental assessments. And our protocol was only like five pages long. And the meat of it was you can pick up a phone and talk. And my program manager can talk to the BC program manager, and they can work it out. They could duke it out. And the results come back to the larger table as leaders. And then it's resolved. It worked wonderfully. But you, you confuse it so much in terms of what we're talking about now. We're all over the place. Mind, mind you, the one thing I'll talk, tell you, none of this is possible. None of it. Unless a First Nation is asked two key questions. And I get asked this all over Canada. How do we duplicate what Tizer did in Kitimat? You can't unless you answer these two questions. What is it that you want? That is a huge question. It's hard to answer. Knowing that you got poverty, suicide, children care. Okay, do you want employment? Yeah. Do you want to end your kids going to care? Yeah. Do you want to end suicide? Yeah. Okay. Now, second question. Are you willing to elect the leadership to get that done? A lot of First Nations in Canada can't answer those two questions. If you can't answer that, you can't have this economic reconciliation conversation. I'm going to deviate a little bit from the question because I want to come back to what is the responsibility of uh, organizations and companies that want to engage uh, in partnerships with First Nations. What is it that they need to be doing that is respectful, that honors the language and traditions, and allows us to move forward? But I also want to recognize, as Greg had pointed out earlier, in British Columbia, we're doing a pretty good job if we measure it against the rest of the, 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 the country. So what are we doing right? What do we need to do to continue to enhance that, especially in the way in which we communicate early on about what our intentions are? Crystal, because uh, I'm really curious about your thoughts because you're now moving into that arena where you are that corporation. I mean, it, again, it's it, when when we established Cedar, and I'm one of the the original remaining original Cedar board members, was essentially taking everything that we've learned al along um, our I guess our experience uh, in dealing with the good, the bad, the ugly of every proponent that that entered our territory, and taking the key pieces of what we would expect um, and and how we would essentially ingrain those values into every decision that CEDAR made. Uh, we still continue to hold those values in, in regards to our, our interaction with Indigenous communities. And it is definitely something that is, is a new process in, in regards to continuing to manage those relationships, to continue to manage the expectations around it. I think in, in one key aspect of what we've always held true is that we will always tell the actual truth and the actual expectations of, of what they can they can see coming from Cedar. So it it we've expected that of proponents, we've expected that of LNG Canada, we expected that of Coastal Gaslink, and that has remained true to, to the success that we've seen in, in our community. Roger. Uh, so we we uh, 
probably four different models that we're pursuing when we're engaging with in Indigenous communities around energy infrastructure projects. Um, we actually have uh, our LNG facility on Vancouver Island, which was commissioned in 2011, has two First Nations have direct equity ownerships. So we did this 12 years ago. It's not new. Um, we signed uh, with the Musqueam equity investment option for the expansion of our Tilbury site. Uh, our parent company is part of the Wate Nikiniap project, which until Crystal uh, uh, goes operational, I think is still the largest Indigenous-owned energy project. It's a, a, a high-voltage power line that is taking about 20-plus uh, Indigenous communities off of diesel onto electricity uh, and giving them uh, a, a reliable, cleaner source of electricity in Northern Ontario. So, you know, equity obviously is, is one thing. Uh, uh, one one approach is, you know, how do you align interests between the project proponent as well as the affected community? But but not all uh, Indigenous communities want equity, right? Some want a regulatory say where they actually have decision-making on how uh, the project will be built uh, and operated within their territory. So we're seeing a number of uh, 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 more interest in uh, that type of role, uh, monitoring, environmental monitoring, construction practices, uh, effectively consent-based decision-making around if you have a project and there's decisions being made during construction, you set up a, a, a structure where you're getting feedback on any, on any changes to design, so you're ensuring that there is uh, Indigenous uh, perspectives for the effective community. Uh, clearly, uh, the skills-based training, contracting opportunities uh, uh, with Indigenous-led uh, businesses, so they see immediate benefit, much to what uh, Crystal has said, where those communities see a real tangible benefit to having infrastructure uh, in their lands, right? It can't simply be, you know, a, a, a royalty stream is, is, is the fourth uh, way, but in many ways, there's greater and greater interest in building uh, businesses that will be legacy businesses for many um, First Nations. I, a story I tell is I, I was I worked previously for West Coast Energy. Um, uh, West Coast uh, built a pipeline from Vancouver Island, over, from Vancouver uh, mainland over to Vancouver Island, and struck a deal with uh, some First Nations. One of them was. Uh, the Cowichan and uh, one of the, the, the leaders there, he uh, started an a excavation company. Well, three generations later, his grandson is working for us at Fortis doing excavation work from that first contract. So they, they built a family business around those opportunities that have that basically provided benefit um, for generations. So there is not really going to be one um, way to approach it. I think it really comes back to understanding what is of importance to the community, and that's going to be different. Even you know, two nations side by side may take a different approach. And if you have linear infrastructure that is engaging multiple First Nations, it won't be one size fits all. I mean, that would be the ideal, but you may find different solutions and different requirements. So again, you have to show up early. You have to develop relationships based on trust and really understand what is it that the uh, is of value and of importance to the community um, before you get to the point where you're actually uh, developing a project. So Greg, um, how important then is it for companies that want to partner with First Nations that their core principles are in alignment with the values of the First Nation that they are seeking uh, to work with? I, I would argue, as Tom talked about earlier, around 
uh, and others talked about starting on the land base, it's as important as the capital and the expertise that you bring. Because nothing's going to happen, you know, I think Roger said, uh, net zero goes through indigenous territory. It's quite, quite true, but so do and he was quoting roads himself. and social <laughs> policy and healthcare and everything else. Mm -hmm. And that inequity uh, and trust has been broken for centuries. And so part of that uh, alignment of values is important. And, and corporate Canada um, wants to do the right thing. Sometimes they don't know how to do the right thing, but there's some amazing companies. Roger and I have known each other a while. They really dig in to try to understand and work uh, collaboratively. There's lots of companies in this room doing exactly the same thing, but you don't know unless you sit down and actually learn. I remember LSU telling me the story when you went to one of the local nations and said, man, I didn't realize how different their culture was from mine when you were doing some forest contracts. And, and it's true, we just don't know each other and you don't know a lot of the challenges. I was dealing with an issue up in northeastern BC last year, <clears throat> and the issue became around disturbance on the land base from the oil and gas sector. And a conversation about, well, how could we mitigate that? And some of the companies said, well, we've got technology that would completely eliminate disturbance on the land base. And the nation said, well, but that's gonna take a lot of economic activity away from our community. <clears throat> so the conversation was, how do you do it sustainably, but create wealth and opportunity in the community? So having those real conversations, or if you're in a you know pipeline business, and um, Roger and I've talked about this, where you get you know price spikes in energy, um, they've got smoothing uh, policies that try to manage that cost base. In a lot of rural communities that just don't have access to sustainable energy, they don't have those kinds of policies. So just thinking about how you can meet basic human needs is really important. But you know, back to your question around what, what are some single things, the answer is there aren't, there's 203 First Nations and there's different dialects and conversations. I'm, I'm going to Sokotin territory tomorrow and was there two weeks ago, I met with the community that 30% of the people don't speak English. And I think there's a lack of knowledge of just in British Columbia of just cultural understanding around where the aspirations of those communities are going forward. <clears throat> so put yourself in the other person's shoe. Understand their values, but it's shared knowledge and understanding. Capital markets have values too, and they need a return, and they need certainty and clarity, and there's a, a reciprocal on economic reconciliation, which is shared accountability. And, and capital goes to where there's that clarity going forward. And as I said, we could differentiate ourselves in meaningful ways globally around technology. Can you think about how complex this land base is if we consolidated all of the data that we have on the land and climate and energy and infrastructure and permits and let First Nations own that data. And think about environmental assessment processes that could go through and you access the data but fill gaps and really get into shared decision making but it becomes transparent. We've got some of the best digital twinning expertise anywhere in the world right here in British Columbia. And that's where those kinds of things in a new digital economy could really be thought through but it takes change and change brings fear and fear brings a loss of control. And I mean, there's all those kinds of things we're grappling with too. Thomas, just before I come to you, uh, when Greg was speaking, Crystal goes, oh, hang on a second. I've got a, I've got a, a comment to add. And so it, I, I took it from a corporate perspective when I, when I first answered this question, but I'm taking it from an indigenous leader. Uh, we hold the, the ability to, and we've, I've heard this ever since I've become a, a, a member of our council, we're stronger together. And I think that the responsibility where I'm coming at 
this response from is us as indigenous leaders need to be able to work with one another in order to help support industrial development when we see the values align as well. So there's responsibilities within our communities and I'm, I'm just thinking about some current um, projects that we're, that we're working on. Uh, specifically one, that I think there was an announcement around the, the hydro um, project that I, I believe there's 20, and I'm looking at the end, KPMG, 22 um, Indigenous nations that have come together collectively because we know that we bring more value when we work together. Uh, we've had projects that, that have come through those similar 22 nations that the, the different impact benefit agreements essentially again set us up for a little bit of a competition when it came to any type of awarding of contracts. So what happened and, and what we've experienced and it, it's very positive to see when you when you have indigenous communities that don't want to have the same things happening continuously and that are willing to come at it with a different perspective and a different role. So the 22 nations that we've, some of us have signed an MOU to continue this work and to navigate these conversations as to how we can improve what has is coming back to our communities and then having a project that as as huge as the hydro project be successful. Thomas. Uh, yeah, so I, I think I'll probably just pick up from Greg. I mean, I tend to agree, um, I guess a more generic comment that working with a lot of uh, business and industrial uh, clients across Canada, um, I would say all of them without exception want to do the right thing. Um, some of them come to the table with more um, acumen uh, and resources than others, but all wanting to do uh, the right thing. The biggest, I guess, advice that we sort of pass along is a, you know, go, in, go into discussions with Indigenous governments knowing clearly what you want first. We deal with so many clients sometimes who aren't sure about what they actually want, believe it or not. I mean, they know they want to build their project, but what do they really want? What is their ultimate value proposition? Uh, they don't have to tell everybody what that is, but you need to know that on, on day one. And then two, we hear the word used a lot, but I think it's totally accurate, and that's respect. Uh, respecting um, the indigenous governments that you're uh, working with and trying to build a relationship. The biggest issue I see with this again, comes back to the regulatory regime though. And this is again where government plays a major role in this. In order to develop relationships, what do you need? You need time. And so you need the time to be able to invest into the relationships and depending on the project, depending on what part of the country you're working uh, in, that will look differently um, uh, across, across uh, the country and across industries and across indigenous governments. But if you are also faced with an uncertain regulatory regime or an uncertain regulator, and this is quite common right now in Canada, where we'll have regulators sitting on the fence, government decision makers, statutory decision makers, not really sure when they're going to make a decision. Um, and, and so again, this isn't about right or wrong. That's another debate. This is just dealing with the uncertainty of trying to deploy capital, knowing that and for good reason, you're going to build a relationship with the indigenous government or governments that you need to, but at the same time, trying to deal with the reality that you may, not in every instance, 
but it's common, deal with a regulator that isn't sure when they might make a decision, whether they'll ever make a decision, what that decision might be. We've got a real issue in this country. And so if we're serious about economic reconciliation, which I think we are, to be very clear, again, as a country and obviously as a province, uh, we have to deal with both ends of this equation. Um, capital is fleeing. Um, I'm seeing it, and again, I don't want to sound too negative about this, but this is a real issue. Uh, we, there is a perception, I just came back from two weeks in Australia working, there's a real perception about our country as much as we are leading, and this is very positive, and I was really proud to be a Canadian, um, talking about the great things that we're doing in our country on the Indigenous front. Again, not perfect, but we are clearly trying to go in the right direction. Uh, the flip side of that is I walked away going, my goodness, where are we at competitively? Because, uh, again, you pay a price on both ends of this. So this, again, is a role for public government in this, to start showing, start showing leadership on these very important questions. But these require very difficult discussions that, to date, um, we have not had, as a country, let alone a province, we have not had these discussions uh, as a country. One last thing I would say um, is we can't leave behind the individual. I've had the great honor, you know, I've worked in this area and studied in this area my entire adult life. Um, and I didn't really fully appreciate the importance of healthy individual, healthy family, healthy community, healthy government, good business partner. And I had the great honor of working with uh, residential school survivors on a couple of settlements. And I will tell you, it changed my life um, and my perception of what we need to do. And there's a great deal of healing that needs to go on in our country. And this is good for business, ultimately. But we cannot lose sight that there are real people suffering. And I'm always concerned about the rhetoric. Uh, I'm vehemently against it, and I call it out. I don't speak too much publicly anymore, but I do call it out when I do hear it because it's, it, we're leaving behind. I feel like we're leaving behind individuals and families. These people have got to heal, and we should be doing everything we can to support that. So not directly on point, but I do believe ultimately on point in terms of the discussion around economic reconciliation. So thank you. Well, to wrap up, I'd, I'd like to wrap up with this thought. Perrin Beattie uh, just recently said that Canada is developing a reputation of a country that you can't get things built in. What role uh, is this very topic, economic reconciliation, going to play in our ability to turn around that reputation and on what kind of timeline? And I'm going to give you a really short uh, you know, 60 seconds to give us an answer, but I'm going to hopscotch my way down um, uh, the panel here. And Greg, I'd like to start with you. I knew you were going to do that for some reason. So. Ellis can tell me what I think the answer is, but um, <laughs> we need to be purposeful. We've had the luxury of not having to worry about the economy and competitiveness, and the world's changed. We've got geopolitical fights, we've got self-interest, we've got uh, algorithms dividing us. We have to be purposeful around what we're gonna do and why we're gonna do it. On the land base, we are exceptional globally around getting things to market that are done well, that have low carbon intensity comparatively. Uh, China had 750 million tons of additional emissions in 2021 and 2022 because of the shift to coal, because of the Ukraine war and the economic growth. 
If LNG had been present in the marketplace, we could have taken two to three times BC's total emissions out of the global atmosphere, but we didn't move quickly enough. So my answer is we need to be purposeful, we need to be partnered, and we need to be uh, clear around how we expedite decisions in a different way. And that includes the comment, I was joking, but it includes a comment Ellis made. Statutory decision-making can be moved up at a high level to give clear direction on execution within clear timelines. The EU has done that through legislation. The US has done it, Australia has done it. We can do it, but it has to be done in collaboration with indigenous nations based on what they'd like to do in their community and what we can do with purpose as a country. Leon. Yeah, I think one of the primary reasons, particularly here in BC, why decisions are not being made at speed, and Greg, great example, I think, where the, where the province didn't move as quickly as we needed to is because of the uncertainty in a relation, you just talked about it, of the regulator, but the regulatory process as well, particularly as it relates to consultation. So I think to change that, the province needs to have really bold leadership to recognize that that fleeing of capital will continue at speed until we make some pretty substantive changes very quickly. And I think the province can do that. And if we do, I think, you know, by setting really clear expectations and a really clear path and certainty to how do you make a decision, uh, that's got to have nations right at the center of all of that. And if we can do that, I think we absolutely can bring back that capital. I think capital wants to be here in BC if we can only help ourselves to create a process that provides that certainty and that includes nations as part of that decision-making process. Roger. Uh, agree uh, with what uh, Greg and Leon just said. Just a couple of points. I think um, when we think about uh, getting to yes, uh, how we move projects forward. Um, the indigenous part of it is only one part of it. There's other opponents to projects, environmentalists with no um, real accountability, but a mandate to oppose uh, local communities. Our experience for the most part is that indigenous communities actually do want to invest. They are enablers, they're not the roadblock. I think that's a misconception that we've uh, had spun up uh, for some instances, but for the most part, um, every First Nation is looking for a chance to do what Crystal and also achieved. Um, with the Heisla, there's there's lots of support. So um, I, I, I wanna make sure that there's a, there's a broader discussion about how we move projects forward that's not just the Indigenous. Uh, they're not the roadblock, I actually think they're gonna be the great enabler here because I think by, uh, you know, if, if, if land-based projects, if infrastructure uh, requires Indigenous uh, consent, and that consent will be a part of the environmental assessment certificate process that may take longer, but it will, in, eff in effect, make that certificate less likely to be challenged and give that certainty more work up front, a little bit more um, uh, uh, engagement up front, but I think having the indigenous support is one step to allow the regulator to say yes, because it is the critical piece. So I think, you know, I don't know what the answer is to get there, but I think that's really what we should focus on. Is that capacity building? Uh, yes. Is it uh, enabling 
Indigenous communities uh, easier access to low-cost funding to become equity investors. And it's not just loan guarantees for operating facilities. That's the easy part. Anybody can finance those. It's how do you de-risk development dollars when you've got a five or six-year process where you don't know if you're going to get an environmental assessment certificate. Those development dollars, the risky ones, is where I think you know access to capital is challenged. So yes on the capacity, yes on the loan guarantee program, but also thinking about how you uh, de-risk uh, the investment for Indigenous communities. They don't have a big balance sheet. They may have one opportunity. Uh, and they start with, uh, you know, very little, and then they build what we're seeing up north. So I think those are the things that um, uh, like minds will, will focus on to, to make sure that we're de-risking the investment decisions and attracting more capital. Thomas. Um, I'm actually, look, I, I think economic reconciliation um, is a must. I don't think that there is an option for Canada I think we have the opportunity, um, and I'll say opportunity, uh, to use economic reconciliation to actually make us great competitors on the global economic stage. I am more pessimistic on our ability to do that, though. And um, I don't see a grand vision coming from public governments uh, in Canada about, and I'll use British Columbia as an example, what kind of British Columbia do we want? What does a governable, economically, environmentally, honorably respectful British Columbia look like that is reconciled? If we can't come up with a common vision on that, where are we going? And I go back to sort of Alice, I, you know, he was commenting about where we, we seem to be going in circles, and we need to have a vision of where we're going. Uh, there's a, a lot at stake here, and I, I Right now, I, I am a little pessimistic on that front. I don't, I don't think we're capable of doing it. I don't think our public governments, it, it requires such a difficult discussion that goes far beyond the rhetoric. And this issue does not lend itself well to, the, to politics. And this is the problem we have. And it gets treated like a normal, what I would call political issue. This genie does not go back in the bottle. So I see economic reconciliation as a massive opportunity for global competitiveness for our great country, I'm not convinced and I don't see evidence that we are able to actually, I see positive examples. So we've all got great examples, but I'm talking macroeconomically. I, I very much worry, I think it'll take more of a crisis based on past history in this country. I hope I'm wrong, but there's a level of complacency that as Canadians that we, we need a radical rethink of um, our province and how we are going to be economically, again, environmentally sustainable that is respectful of our um, uh, Indigenous governments as well and Indigenous people. So, you know, I'm a little optimistic that, you know, if we keep having discussions like this, maybe we'll start engaging governments in real dialogue in this issue. So, anyway, yeah, exactly I'll stop there. Thank yeah, you. Exactly why we are having this conversation. Conrad, we're just about wrapped up. I'm coming to you. I'll go real quick then. Uh, the great Patty, Chief Patty Wakas. Uh, was the chief of the Gwaslanakwara Nation for almost 40 years. When I started to work for the nation, he said something very powerful, and it didn't resonate with me at the time, but as I'm spending more and more years in the role of working with First Nations in economic development, he said, do not walk ahead of me, I will not follow you. Don't allow me to walk ahead of you, because I don't expect you to follow me. 
if we walk side by side with respect and communication, we'll all end up where we need to end up. So mm. if I could just leave that with you folks, that's as short as I can keep it within your timeline. Ellis, can you be that succinct? <laughs> no. <laughs> I find it ironic that uh, First Nations and the corporate world are on the same page. <laughs> but you have a common en enemy. Legislation, regulations, and policies that are chasing capital out of Canada. Now, as chief counsel, I said this. I said the success of Canada is going to be based on First Nations. Nobody cared about that back then, but today it's becoming evident. Look at the clean energy plan that was put together. Business Council BC says it's going to contract the economy by $28 billion. It's going to shrink family incomes by $11,000 annually. First Nations, non-First Nations alike. So you, you list all the policies, regulations, and legislations coming out of Victoria and combine that with what's coming out of Ottawa. First Nations, corporate world, you've got to realize you're fighting for the same thing. You've got a lot of common issues. Can you raise that to a higher level to say, look, not only are we fighting for our regions and for our communities or for our corporate success, we're fighting for Canada. We're fighting for Canadians. If you can get there, then you can have the turnaround that uh, my colleague is talking about. Crystal, you had the opening word. You have the final word. The closing. I, I wanted to share the same sentiments. Uh, it is definitely Roger, after he was done speaking, said, I hope you agree with me. Um, I, I'd be embarrassed if he didn't. And it is absolutely inspiring to hear that corporations and Indigenous communities have that like-minded thinking. I do disagree on a minor factor around a little bit of the regulatory piece because, as Ellis talked about, we were a huge part of that success with LNG Canada and Coastal GasLink. It is already written. Our processes and what we've been able to accomplish over the years are established. And I think that they're a very, very positive uh, example as to how corporations, Indigenous communities, and governments can come together to actually move projects to be successful. Now, on, on, on another level, when you're talking about, and I've heard this quite a few times, is that Indigenous communities are going to be the savior of the Canadian economy. And it is so absolutely inspiring to hear that common comment being made on so many different levels from corporations, from government. We are not the problem. We are your solutions. We can navigate how you get your businesses done. And I think I'm hoping that I'll be able to be welcomed back after CEDAR announces our positive final investment decision within the next four to five months, and then I'll be able to speak a little bit more freely because I feel like I'm, I'm a little bit uh, cautious about the comments that I'm making in regards to CEDAR. But I think it's going to be a, the opportunity that our nation, the BC government, and the federal government have for this one project is, is going to be trend-setting. It's going to be trailblazing. And I'm hoping that I can come back when we announce our positive final investment decision. Thank you. Thank you, Crystal. Uh, I would like to close by uh, referring to a comment that Greg made off the top when he was talking about the collective will to address an emergency issue on the Coquihalla. We collectively determined that this had to get done, and I believe that um, we're moving in that direction as far as being able to uh, 
overcome some of the regulatory and legislative hurdles that are in our way. And if we continue to have these discussions, maybe we can move forward in a positive way and hopefully quicker. Thank you to everyone. We went longer tonight than anticipated, but it was such an extraordinary conversation. Uh, Thank you to our sponsors, and I hope that all of you will come back and join us on December the 5th when our topic is Asia-Pacific, where do we go from here? Thank you and good night. Thank you.